everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Thrilled to have you back for another edition of Growing Bolder. Folks, this is the show where each and every week we prove it's never too late to create the life you want. On today's show, you got to remember Claudia Wells, don't you? The actress that played Jennifer Parker? Michael J. Fox's girlfriend in the original Back to the Future, she is going to be here to tell us why she was replaced by Elizabeth Shue in the sequels and how she's reinvented her entire life as an entrepreneur. Looking forward to that. Also today, a tribute to our pal, Banana George. Key Howard is going to tell us why life is grand. The 72-year-old photographer who works 600 feet up in the air and the winner of the Growing Boulder Inspiration Award, all coming up today on Growing Boulder. Well, folks, if you think not being able to read music or play a single note should keep you from winning a Grammy, an Emmy, a Tony, and Webby award-winning stuff, then you ought to meet Allie Willis because, Bill, that is exactly her story. Just looking at what she's done, Mark. She wrote the theme song for Friends, Earth, Wind, and Fire, September, Boogie Wonderland, the Pointer Sisters' Neutron Dance, the Broadway musical version of The Color Purple, and so many more hits I can't even say it in a breath. In fact, her songs have sold more than 50 million records. She may be the most interesting woman in America because she's also a painter, a set designer, a writer, and an award-winning filmmaker. Her latest project is a love song to her hometown of Detroit, a Motor City sing-along that's called The D. There is a little taste of the D, folks. A great song. And let's welcome a creative tour de force, Miss Allie Willis. Hey, hello, Allie. How are you? Hey, how you doing? Man, we, appre- we appreciate you giving us some time this morning. Uh, you were born in Detroit, and obviously, believe it, not only gets an undeserved bad rap, but it, it isn't celebrated in the way that you think it should be. Well, yeah, not at all. First of all, let me uh, say the main thing about the song, it's, uh, it is... It was written so um, basically that every single Detroiter who wanted to be on the record could be on the record. So it was written for the main, the, the first record in history where the uh, original artist, uh, ha, you know, has as many people. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people singing on this. So what you played was just the demo for the song. So that was me singing it, and that's what everyone learned it from. And then I just uh, went to Detroit with a crew of um, 10, and we uh, went uh, to over 40 different locations in the city where we had sing-alongs organized. And these weren't just a big group of people standing around and, you know, nicely singing a song. This was, you know, if you you know, spun hubcaps or breathed fire or whatever, you know, whatever your talent was, uh, if you wanted to exhibit it, that you know, this was the time. So, you know, we were choreographing groups. I was dancing, you know, with dogs. We, you know, it was pretty amazing scene every single place we went. And we're going back um, at Thanksgiving um, because uh, someone in the um, – on Thanksgiving Day, the Michigan Pom Pom Girls are going to be doing the song, and then I'll record at a bunch more locations there. So, and then it's a song, uh, multiple music videos, and a feature-length documentary. So it's it is quite an undertaking because the you know collaboration eventually involves you know tens of thousands of people. So. Um, as far as I know, nothing like this has ever been done before. Certainly nothing like this has ever done before on literally almost zero budget. It's uh, because I pretty much funded everything other than a very small online campaign that we did. So um, I think never expecting it to be as big as you know it's actually gotten. So... Um, it's quite a feat, but then on the other hand, you know, it's the struggle of uh, Detroit. Detroit is very much a city uh, that I think, you know, has gotten this excessively uh, undeserved reputation based on things that a whole bunch of uh, very arrogant, greedy, you know, people did to the city over a period of six decades. So what's happening in Detroit has been happening 
since the the 1950s, actually. Um, but there is a very huge part of this city that is so vibrant and so completely reimagined. So for the people in Detroit, there's a whole new Detroit that's grown inside of this old crumbling Detroit. And so, yes, the public sector has fallen apart. No surprise, because, again, if you were there, you saw that happening, you know, through the years. But as far as the private sector goes, it is the wild Midwest there. It's fantastic. So I know people there doing incredibly revolutionary things than in a city where people were paying, you know, more attention and it was more prosperous they possibly couldn't do. Um, you know, for amazing ideas, innovative ideas in all areas. And it's such an incredible art city. It's got street art like no other city because it's got giant canvases all over the place. And, Allie, look at the look who the activists are. Look who the people are who are taking the bull by the horns and trying to make things happen. You're in your mid-60s, and you sound so energetic, so passionate, so determined to make a difference. Is life as exciting for you as it always has been? Um, yeah, I can't say that as you get older, it doesn't, you don't quite have that gift of every single second. You've got this massive natural energy. But I, I basically never um, got to do what it is that I think I'm best at doing. I've had, you know, achievements in a lot of separate fields, but I always, from the very beginning, saw myself as a multimedia artist in the true sense of the word multimedia, an artist who could express themselves in a variety of different mediums, uh, but rather than doing a song for this one or a set for that one, a painting for that one, a video for that one, you know, I always wanted to have one big idea that then I got to express in every single way, shape, and form, as opposed to only contributing the music to the video or the, you know, music to the show, when in fact, you know, if you're a multimedia artist, you're seeing this idea expressed visually, sonically, socially. So um, it's always been a bit frustrating for me. Um, but I, you know, I just keep pushing until someone's going to give me a chance to like, finally do it on this scale that I know I'm capable of doing it. And I guess that's what this Detroit project was, you know, for me. Because I've always been obsessed with mass collaboration. I um, first started developing a social network on the Internet in 1992, excessively early for something like that. So I was always interested in, you know, what's a song if... A trillion people are collaborating on it, not, you know, not just two. And in the digital age, you know, what's a song anyway? What I think it's more than something you download on iTunes. It's like once you you know connect all these people, think of the creative result that can bring. So with Detroit, it's almost like I've got that collaborator with a live city, because what comes out as we do these sing-alongs is just like fantastic. And then you somehow have to make sense of these literally thousands and thousands of track, you know, audio tracks and hours of footage. You know, how does that, you know, all come together? And how do people, you know, continue to stay involved? And I guess I never clearly answered your your very first question to me, which was, uh, I guess, you know, why I'm I'm doing it. Um, I. Uh, you know, I don't know how to read, write, or play music. I didn't even know that you mixed colors together to get other colors, you know, painting. I don't really know how to do anything I do. I just always wanted to do it so bad I would figure out some way to do it. Luckily enough, I was, you know, able to swing a few of them out of the park, and so I got a reputation for doing things unorthodoxly you know which was fine the downside was i was all you know for most of my career i was a self-funded artist so you're putting every penny you make 
back into the next thing you want to do, especially if you're switching fields and you got to, um, yeah, you know, people need to uh, trust that you have a modicum of talent there for you to, you know, even be able to, you know, to work. So you've got to get good to a point, you know. But with me, once I was interested in something, I got to go good all the way. And uh, I just felt Detroit was getting an incredible bad rap. Whenever I would go home, I wouldn't see this city that was falling apart that everyone else was seeing. You have to really drive in Detroit to find those buildings with the blown-out windows. And, you know, otherwise it's this, you know, gorgeous a city filled with the most soulful people in the world who just don't give up. You know, these are people who have known they were getting screwed with for decades, and they just kept going. And it's a really friendly city. I think people, you know, go there and they think they're going to get murdered when they get off the plane. And instead, you know, they have a city of people who smile at them as they walk past, you know. So uh, Detroit uh, was so important kind of on the soul map to begin with. I just thought, I, you know, I got to do whatever I can to let people know that things are very different here. And I think it's, you know, potentially a model city this century the same way it is, you know, was to the last. Because it's really dealing with the realities of what happens when you lose everything. And that's happened to me so many times in my career where I just, you know, I would like to lose everything because... I'd go, okay, now I want to try and do something new. And then you stumble around for a few years before something happens. So I just saw parallels kind of my life and my philosophy to where it was that I grew up. And uh, I felt it was time to kind of share that with the people there and, you know, do something maybe we could all benefit from. So I've just been having a ball. These, you know, these crowds have been inspiring me and, you know, I can tell from the song and the way they sing it that it's inspiring them and giving them, you know, r- even more reason to fight for their city. Folks, she is Allie Willis, one of the world's top multimedia artists. Her new song, her new video, her new project on multiple platforms is called The D. And you can find out more about that and even become part of the movement at AllieWillis.com. That is A-L-L-E-E Willis.com. Coming up next, we remember the great Banana George Blair. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton. You're listening to Growing Boulder. Sad note for you now, we recently lost our very good friend, Banana George Blair. Hard to believe, but the most famous barefoot water skier ever passed away in New York. And Mark, he was 98 years old. Yeah, and in the last decade, folks, we probably told more banana stories and shot more video on George than anyone. In fact, Growing Boulder was the only one there in 2008 when at the age of 93, Banana skied for a final time. Today you're going to see history being made because every day uh, Banana George skis is like uh, a new record. It's been a few years since we last hung out with Banana George, the most famous water skier in history. 
His amazing career has been documented in countless magazines, books, and newspapers worldwide for more than four decades. He's got a worldwide international audience of all age groups, including us, you know, as, as his neighbors. But this past year has been tough on George. He was bedridden with a bad case of pneumonia, and the pain and stiffness from six major back surgeries and a broken neck has slowed him down a good bit. But it hasn't diminished his desire to do what he loves most. And I honestly thought after he had some serious problems over the winter health issues that we had seen the last that he was going to barefoot. But uh, he called me up and said he wanted to go again. And I said, if you can walk down to the dock, get in your wetsuit and get in this contraption, we're going to pull him in. Then we'll pull you skiing. And today, with our cameras rolling, George makes it to the boat. Even though I've had every one of his doctors and family members call me and tell me this is not a good idea, I just, you know, I'm going to keep him as safe as I can, and, and we're going to take him out there, and uh, this is what he lives to do. And so I'm trying to just help him do what he wants to do most. Well, of course I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried every time he goes out on the water. We're going to be sitting in a contraption like a swing so that if anything does go wrong, I can lift him up out of the water, shut the boat down, and bring him down. The one thing that's real interesting about George you might not have known is the guy has drowned twice in his life, and he's terrified of the water, which even makes it more amazing that he wants it to get out this badly. I can't stop him. Nobody can stop him. So, <laughs> Believe me, I tried 10 years ago. <laughs> he's still out there. The boat quickly backs out George in the swing. He only has enough strength for one attempt, and the clock is ticking. At age 93, his bare feet are once again on the water, but as his weight is lowered, he spins and tumbles. His good friend Moose is in the water in an instant. A few tense moments later... He's good. You sure you're okay, Georgie? I'm positive. You're an animal, George. So we keep telling him. You are an animal. I had his feet on the water, but because he was so light, he didn't have enough control to hold himself oh, this way. And when he started to spin, his wrists are so sensitive that as soon as he gets spun a little bit, it hurts so badly he has to let go. Back in the boat, George is disappointed his run didn't last longer, but determined there will be more. It's a world record. <laughs> One. Two, three. Back on the shore, George is gently helped off the boat. Believe it or not, the same procedures used when handling nitroglycerin. <laughs> Once inside, he shares a stack of emails from all over the world. You are an inspiration to people young and old. My fourth grade students enjoy learning about your life. I used you as an example of a famous person that has had a positive impact on the life of others. Thank you, George. <laughs> George gets emotional thinking about his positive impact on others and excited when asked how long he wants to barefoot. <laughs> Forever! <laughs> Before we leave, George wants us to see the sign in his kitchen that sums up his philosophy of life, even at age 93. Do it. All of life is up and down. I think uh, I don't wait for the next thing, but I make the next thing happened. Even at 93 and a half, uh, the guy's got drive and passion, and, and uh, he loves the challenge. I'm not growing older. I am growing bolder. How do you like that? George, we like that a lot. Bill, I will never get tired of hearing that. And we certainly will miss our time with Banana George. Of course, he wasn't just famous in this country. He was a legend worldwide. And while we certainly were in awe of his barefoot water skiing skills, you know what we love most about this guy was his sheer determination to live life on his own terms for as long as he possibly could. He was absolutely amazing. You know, in that story that you just heard, his wife, Joanne, says she couldn't stop him from skiing. Nobody could stop him because skiing was what he lived to do. And even though he did get seriously injured how many times over and over again, it was skiing that kept him active and vibrant into his mid-90s. It was skiing and the friends that he made through skiing that got him up every day and helped him recover from surgeries and setbacks you have to believe would have derailed anybody else. You know, Bill, that is a great point. And when you think about it, George's enduring legacy probably has very little to do with skiing. His legacy is the importance, folks, of pursuing your passion and the power of persistence. Rest in peace, George, and thanks for the memories.
time once again to hear from our pal Key Howard. Now, Key, if you don't know, is an actor, a writer, producer, director, and a musician. And this guy has worked with everybody. Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dinah Shore, Nat King Cole, even Don Rickles. This guy has so much wisdom that now in his mid-80s, he still likes to say, ain't life grand. I read a humorous letter the other day written by a Mr. Peter Gibson, chairman of the Citizens Against Government Waste. He'd addressed it to the head of the Department of Agriculture. Dear sir, I have a friend, Ed Peterson, who just received a check for $1,000 from the government for not raising hogs. So I want to go into the not raising hogs business next year. As I see it, the hardest part of the program will be keeping an accurate inventory of how many hogs I haven't raised. Now, my friend Peterson, he's been raising hogs for over 20 years, and the best he ever made on them was about $425 back in 1968 until this year when he got your check for $1,000 for not raising hogs. Now, using a ratio of $1,000 for every 50 hogs and holding myself down to only 4,000 hogs not raised the first year, I should get a check for around $80,000. And another thing, these hogs that I'm not going to raise will not be eating 100,000 bushels of corn. And it's my understanding that you also pay farmers for not raising corn or wheat. Will I qualify for these payments as well as the money I'll be receiving for not raising 4,000 hogs? And of course, in view of these circumstances, you understand that I'll be totally unemployed and that I plan to file for food stamps and unemployment. But please rest assured, you'll have my vote in the coming elections. Patriotically yours. And until next time, this is Key Howard. (laughs) Ain't life grand. Oh, Key is making a point today, folks. You know, Bill, another great example, Key Howard, is of reinventing yourself in your mid-80s. He's got something to say, and folks, we're very happy to give him the opportunity to say it because he is an unusual guy, kind of a cross between Paul Harvey and Andy Rooney. And what I like about him is he's thought-provoking, he's a great storyteller, and he always leaves you feeling at least a little better about life. And who doesn't need some of that? Coming up, it took him 15 years, but Joe Blum, now in his 70s, finished his high wire act documenting the construction of the new Bay Bridge. And wait till you hear his story. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. Hey everyone, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton and you're listening to Growing Boulder on the radio. Our next guest spent decades as a boilermaker, a ship fitter, and a welder. He's a tradesman who loved the labor process so much that once he retired, he he couldn't walk away. In fact, he dedicated himself to documenting it both in words and photographs. Yeah, you've heard of a labor of love. His is actually a love of labor. A a 15-thank you, Bill. A 15-year personal project documenting construction of the new east span of the Bay Bridge, capturing amazing views of the workers doing their thing 600 feet above the San Francisco Bay. Let's welcome the photographer himself, Mr. Joe Blum. Hey, Joe. How are you? How are you? Hey, we we love this project. And let's take it back to the beginning, because that's really what you did. You shot this entire thing beginning with the very day that they started taking soil samples. Did you know then that this would turn out to be a 15-year project uh, that you would see all the way through? Well, I don't know that anybody can predict the future like that, but um, I I knew I wanted to photograph the construction of this new bridge and uh, figured I'd start at the beginning and see where it took me. 
Boy, talk about taking you places when you see the pictures. The, and your photos are incredible. These workers building the bridge. It's easy to forget that the guy who's up there with them taking those pictures, lugging the gear, maneuvering on the scaffolding, catwalks and cables or whatever you have, 600 feet in the air, is now 72 years old. Joe, what were you doing? Uh, trying to keep young. <laughs> it was great to go out there every day. Um, Everybody on the job looked out for me. I think they understood what I was trying to do. You know, there's something really magical about suspension bridges in general, and the new Bay Bridge is suspended from a single 525-foot tower. It's gorgeous. But as much as you love and appreciate the designing and the engineering work, your fascination, Joe, isn't it with the guys who are actually hammering the bolts and welding the iron? Oh, absolutely. It's about the workers. And um, unlike, you know, the the Golden Gate and the uh, Bay Bridge that were built in the 30s, uh, this job also included women workers. Not not quite as many as uh, one might hope, but um, it wasn't all men. And also, Joe, what you did, I mean, there there have been other photographers, but in many cases, they'll kind of capture the point of view of the designers or, or the design itself. But you... What makes your stuff so interesting is it really is about the guys who are swinging the hammers and wielding the rivet guns. What is it about the workers, men and women, that that fascinate you and that you appreciate so much? Well, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family in New York, and we used to have to wonder about uh, call the handyman to do something. And uh, when I grew up, I actually went off and worked in the trades for years, and I realized that that people take a lot of that stuff for granted, and... um, and I had the opportunity to go behind the scenes and show people what it really takes to uh, to build a bridge. So there's been a lot of controversy around the bridge. It's been very expensive, um, you know. Um, but uh, the thing I wanted to show was uh, the people that built it, um, as much as I could from their perspective, and that uh, you know they uh, they put the pieces where uh, where it was told, and uh, and uh, they're out there every day, no matter what the weather, no matter what the conditions. Um, it's hard work, um, and uh, I was hoping I could uh, show the public what it takes to uh, to build these things that we mostly take for granted. Folks, we're talking with Joe Blum, who at 72 years old, in his retirement, undertook a 15-year project to document 500 feet up the construction of the new Bay Bridge in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, Joe, these photographs were celebrated recently at an exhibit at the San Francisco City Hall. Uh, Are there any plans to put them into a book? I mean, we talk about them. We want people to be able to see them. Obviously, they can see them at your website, Joseph Blum Photography, but but will there be a book at some point? Joseph A. Blum Photography. Thank you. (laughs) Joseph A. Blum, B-L-U-M, photography.com. Are you going to put them into a book? Uh... I'd love to do a book. So far, I haven't found a publisher, <laughs> so I'm still thinking about it. And um, yeah, I think a book would be a uh, um, it would make it more accessible. You know, sell prints is, is difficult, and people don't have room for that. But people do have room for books. So yes, it would it would be. Uh, I'm hoping in the future that there there will be a book about the uh, uh, of the construction of the bridge. Now, Joe, we, we we wanted to have you on not as much for what you did but more for who you are. I mean, you are this cool 72-year-old guy hanging out with these young guns, climbing on huge bridges, pursuing your art, and being interviewed by the media. You've got a cool goatee. You've got a ponytail. Guys were never <laughs> like you at the age of 72, you know, a generation or two ago. No, I think that's really true. Um, uh, two days after my 72nd birthday, I thought about it. My father died when he was 52 years and two days old. And I thought, oh, my God, I've outlived my father by uh, by 20 years. And um, and it was a day I was going up on the bridge. Um, it is quite amazing. And uh, so I'm very thankful for that. You know, Joe, we're fascinated by, you know, what people do in, in so-called retirement because it's nothing like it used to be. Did you take photographs when you were younger? Was photography always a hobby uh, or an avocation of yours? I did some. Um, I look back and I do see, obviously, there were some family photos that I took. And also I did I did take some pictures of, uh, of work sites and some other things earlier. But um, I don't know that I really understood that it was going to be quite the passion that it was for me. Um, when I was back in graduate school, I began 
considering myself sort of a street photographer, and then I went out and photographed pear pickers in the Delta out here in California. And uh, and work has always really fascinated me. And um, so people people doing work. Um, uh, and my first, um, I went back to the shipyards. I had been the dispatcher at the Boilermakers after uh, I retired from working in the trade. And um, and I went back and photographed some of the places where I had worked, a Ford shop and stuff like that. And I got a pretty positive response from the photographs and realized it was something that people, um, you know, didn't know about. And um, and it sort of revived the thing. You know, in the 30s, it was popular. You had people like um, Lewis Hine and uh, Margaret Bork White and stuff like that showing this kind of work. And uh, in recent years, that hasn't been the case. Hey, Joe, what, what can we learn from you, from, from your works, from the things you see, from the kind of person you are? What's the takeaway? What can we, what's your message? I don't know. Just, you know, follow your passion, live your life, um, um, you know, to the fullest. And um, I don't know that I have lessons for anybody. I mean, it just, it, it really worked for me. I really was not sure where I was going to be. Uh, you know, the work dried up at the shipyards, and um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And... Um, with the social safety net, you know, I have a small boiler, make a pension, social security. I was actually able to go out and 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 do this without, um, you know, without needing to earn money uh, um, for these last fifteen or twenty years in the same way. Um, it's a modest pension, but um, um, since uh, my house was paid for earlier and uh, my uh, son has grown, uh, I was able to do that. But I think following your passion and um, um, and trying to live every day as best you can is it's pretty trite, but that would be what I would say. That is a good one, even if you have to follow your passion 500 feet up in the air. He is Joe Blum, and folks, you can learn more about him and his photographs at josephablumphotography.com. Thanks, Joe. Coming up next, the amazing story of Claudia Wells. That name doesn't ring a bell? Well, she had a major role in one of the most popular movies of all time. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. Hey everybody, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is an actress, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an all-around cool chick that I know we fell in love with after her role in a little 1985 blockbuster film by the name of Back to the Future. Yeah, she starred as Michael J. Fox's girlfriend, Jennifer Parker, in the original film, but was replaced by Elizabeth Shue in the next two sequels. And when you find out why, you will love her even more. Let's say hello to Claudia Wells. Hey, Claudia, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you guys doing? Well, we're better now. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. And let's do answer that question that many have about why you were replaced by, by Elizabeth. What most people don't know is that your mom was diagnosed with cancer during the filming of the original Back to the Future. And, and you really pretty much put your career on hold to take care of her, didn't you? I did. I did. She was actually diagnosed after I filmed the original Back to the Future. It was in between both. And at the time that she was diagnosed, she was already fourth stage lymphoma. Can you talk? So I guess she must have had it when we did Back to the Future, but we didn't know. Talk a little bit, if you could, Claudia, about what it's like. I mean, there you were. You had one foot into stardom and a long, long career, and you had to pull it back voluntarily and, and let family come first. What, what did you go through and what was that like? Well, to be honest, I never thought of myself as, as in stardom or near stardom. That just sort of isn't the way I ever considered myself. I always was just trying to get the next job and working. So when my mom got sick, um, that just took over everything, and things got really difficult, as you can imagine. So I left 
everything that I knew in terms of my career and my social life and all of that and just dealt with what was at hand because, you know, there's doctor's appointments and radiation and chemotherapy and surgery and living with her. So I had to deal with it. And and Norman Cousins was a good farce. So um, he talked to me about, you know, buying almonds and cabbage and, and nutrition and things like that. It was a horrible time. It was a really, really tough time in our lives. You know, we, you can imagine. we met you a couple of years ago at a big DeLorean convention uh, in, in Florida. Bill and I still talk about that that day. You, you also appear regularly at comic conventions all over the country. Are you surprised, Claudia, by the fact that, that a single role in one movie nearly 30 years ago still has the kind of mass public appeal that Back to the Future does? Blows my mind. And you know what? It blows everyone in the cast's mind. Um, with happiness, but none of us expected this. None of us saw it coming. And the adoration and kindness from Back to the Future fans is extraordinary. At my store, I, just the other day, I had two guys who came in from Italy to meet me, three guys who came in from, actually two guys and a girl who came in from Tennessee. And, and I still get, you know, people ordering Back to the Future autographed pictures, weekly. It's just incredible. I'm going to be in Rhode Island this weekend doing an autograph show. I travel all over the world because of this movie, and I'm I'm eternally grateful. And you know, when people do make the trek to come see you, it is so worth it. I mean, you've got such an engaging personality. You're Aww. absolutely beautiful on the inside and out. And and I do want to I do want to give a plug here. You mentioned your store. I think it was what in the '90s when you were taking a break from acting, you opened up a, a high fashion men's clothing store. I did. It's called Armani Wells. It's in Studio City. It's high end clothing just for men. Um, I saw Armani, Versace, Canale, Xenia, all the expensive labels for men's clothing from jeans to tuxedos, head to toe. It's a one-stop shop, and instead of paying three or 4000 for a suit, you pay two to 400 and, and now would and be... it's all current style, perfect condition. It's resale, so it's brand new at resale prices or pre-owned in perfect condition. And, and, and is it true, Claudia, I heard at some point that you, you get some of these clothing from, from some of the, the, the you know films around town. It's stuff that... Oh, yeah, I get studio clothing, fashion show clothing, celebrity clothing, rock star clothing. I'm it for men's clothes. You know, and I... On December 19th, I'll have been open 22 years. Congratulations. And could you get me an Armani suit that uh, Brad Pitt wore? <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't tell you who wore it because I keep that very exclusive. Keep well, now would be the appropriate time, excuse me, Bill, to mention uh, she said Armani Wells. It is ArmaniWells.com. Uh, several ways to, to, to uh, catch up with Claudia, but that you can take a look at her store and actually buy from her online. And I was just going to mention, Claudia, that if you do get Marcus suit, he's more Hugh Jackman size. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Guys you. Are awesome. Hey, uh, we also want to mention, because, you know, we admire so many things about you. You're on the board of directors for Kids in the Spotlight, which really is a unique program that trains youth in foster care programs how to actually cast and write and star in their own films. Tell us about that. Yes. Actually, last Saturday we just had our annual Oscar-type ceremony and screening um, for them, and it's oftentimes the only time they get dressed up, and it's definitely one of the only times they get to be honored. But they write their own short films, and we do a 10-week program that we bring to foster care facilities. I actually uh, starred in one of the films as the meth addict mom, <laughs> and the 15-year-old who starred in it wrote the entire thing. Um, it's amazing. It's uplifting for them. It's $10,000 Per session, and we bring it to them for free. So we definitely need <clears throat> donations because it's all run by donations, and 100% of the donations goes toward the kids. No one gets paid. None of us get paid. We just do it because we love it. And it's kidsinthespotlight.org that people can find out information and donate, and it blesses their lives like you can't even imagine. You know, and we like to bring the programs to. This year, we could only afford to go to one foster care facility. The year uh, last year, we went to three. Um, but it's it's just it's crucial um, to keep it going. It's just for these kids, and I don't know of any other program that really does something like that for foster kids. 
Well, Claudia Wells, thank you for doing what you do. It's it's just amazing. And we're huge fans of yours also because we know the other side of your story, and that's for years you lived and battled through constant pain. You, you put this great front on, but inside, I mean, you were really in pain, but yet you've overcome and persevered. Can you talk just a little bit about that in the final minute that we have left? Oh, I was in absolute agony. I had a car crash when I was 19, and it, all of it came to a head uh, several years ago, and I, I didn't know why I was in so much pain. went to a ton of doctors. No one could figure anything out. And then Dr. Robert Masson, who's the most genius neurosurgeon who became a a spine and neck doctor figured me out and did a double discectomy. I had bulging herniated discs in my neck and he fixed me up and within a week I was out of pain. That was in October 2010 and it literally saved my life. Claudia, we've only got 20 seconds now. What's the takeaway? ClaudiaWells.com. That's where you can get autographed Back to the Future pictures. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And now give, a, give us a takeaway. Give us 15 seconds what you've learned about life that we should know. It's all about perception. If you perceive the positive in any situation, it'll magnify itself, and that's how you feel about the situation. So really find any glimmer of hope and positivity in any situation. Focus on that. Trust God. Have faith in God and understand that we were all born for a purpose. And we're all meant to be here, and God loves us no matter what. And we love Claudia Wells. Claudia, thanks for spending some time with us. Keep on doing your thing, and good luck with all of your endeavors. Coming up next, she's the winner of the Growing Boulder Rowdy Games Inspiration Award, and when you meet her, you'll know why. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest is a registered nurse specializing in palliative care a doctor of education who helps families deal with the imminent death of loved ones. She's one of the world's top medical ethicists, the author of nine books, president of her own company, an in-demand speaker worldwide, a triathlon coach, swim lesson instructor, and a grandmother. She is one amazing woman. But you know what, Bill? She is not here for any one of those reasons, although we will probably talk about some of them. She's here today because she is the winner of the Growing Boulder Inspiration Award handed out every year at the Rowdy Gaines Masters Classic. She was involved in two horrendous accidents, and both times doctors said she most likely would never walk again. But her recovery has been nothing short of amazing. Let's find out more as we welcome Dr. Diane Ustel. Hey, Diane, how are you? Hey, Mark, I'm just perfect. Thank you. Man, we could talk, we could talk to you oh about any gosh. one of those things Bill mentioned, but let's start with the accident because that's, uh, that, that's when and where I met you. You had your first accident in 2003, rear-ended by a car going 60 miles an hour. How badly were you injured? Well, my, I really am left with a very serious spinal cord injury, which is pretty tricky because at any moment in time, if I move myself just the wrong way, um, I could be flat in bed and uh, not be doing any physical activity for months at a time. So I race very cautiously. But, you know, in terms of accidents, I've only had two my whole life. That's not so bad. But both have been life-changing 
And I don't mean life-changing because of the accident. I, I think I mean life-changing because I have to deal with it every single day of my life. I have pain every day. Most people wouldn't guess that. When you live with chronic pain, you learn to look at life a little bit differently, and sometimes it's a bit of a struggle. And swimming has given me a way to like, get away from that kind of pain that I experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I've had both those accidents because it's taught me to value my friends and my family and my faith. It's just taught me so many things that I'm, I'm actually glad I had those accidents. But I do struggle with the pain every day. Well, you know, you hear somebody say something like that, Diane, and it's really hard to believe. You know, Mark explained what happened the first time. Yeah. The second, you know, you, you go through all this rehab and you, you really have this great attitude. You fight all the way back. And then you something as ridiculous as you, you <laughs> fell in a, in a public restroom? Yes. I'm, I'm a professional speaker. I speak on medical ethics all over the country. And I walked into a bathroom that was um, uh, some kind of an emulsion, no signs, no nothing. And as I mentioned before, my right leg shot out very violently. And in order to stop me from skidding on the floor, I put my left hand down. And it was such a um, emulsion on that floor that my hand kept going and it broke my shoulder and tore out the rotator cuff. So I had two huge things going on on opposite sides of my body. And, oh, my gosh, the rehab was very dramatic because all three hamstrings were ripped off my leg. Um, when I said before to Mark that that was surgery that's never been done in the United States, it's, it's true. Nobody has ever had all three hamstrings totally evolved and then had a crew of people that had to think about medically surgically, how do we reattach this so that this gal has a life again? And they said I'd never really walk properly again and I'd have a real huge limp. Frankly, I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about whether I could be a neat grandmother. Was it going to be some kind of a loving wife to my husband? Was I going to be able to swim? I didn't care about the walking part. I cared about swimming. (laughs) So um, I had a wonderful friend who is a swimmer as well as an encourager and he's a physical um i mean he's a physician assistant and he really found the right people in this country that would take on my case and it took 11 days between the time i was injured until the time they actually did that surgery because it was so difficult and so unusual And the man here in Chattanooga that did that, um, Brett Sanders, I cannot praise him enough and thank him enough. And he's got me on his wall of fame (laughs) as one of his star athletes, so I am very grateful. When I needed my shoulder repaired um, two years later, I, of course, tried to avoid that surgery by doing rehab and by swimming. Um, He finally said, look, obviously you can't even use your arm anymore, even though I was stubbornly trying to do that. He said, I can fix this. I can get you back in the water. Do you trust me? And I did completely. And I've I've had a marvelous recovery, although I have to say it hurts me every day. Whether I like it or not, um, it's part of the way I have to accept my healing. All right, Diane, before we run out of time, and it's amazing how fast it goes. No, uh, we, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. This is fabulous. But we have to mention the other part of the story because that, that's the big part. You mentioned your recovery. We listed all these things that Diane does. What we didn't mention is her swimming because swimming was her rehabilitation from both of these injuries. She had not been in the water competitively in 17 years, but when she got back into rehab, she continued to work out. And here you go, folks. Here's the rest of the story. In a few short years, Diane Ustel has set 38 American and 14 world records in four strokes in distances from 50 to 200 meters. Unbelievable, unprecedented. How is that possible, Diane, in the final 60 seconds? I just think that um, the Lord allowed me to continue to heal. I had friends that encouraged me. My husband is on the side of the pool cheering for me every single time. He's usually the first one that yells, you did it. Um, I, I just have a lot of healthy people around me, and I'm grateful for that. 
And I have a Dutch character that is very positively stubborn when I want to accomplish something. And I needed something more than physical therapy. I wanted concrete goals. And I started very almost scared looking up certain records. And I thought, I can do that. I'm going to try to do that and just inch toward it each time. And and God is good. I'm very blessed. <laughs> well, she is the winner of the Growing Boulder Inspiration Award for this year. And folks, we have just begun to scratch the surface because there is so much more to her life than her accidents and her recovery. It's amazing what she's done in the field of palliative care and, and in, in bringing uh, the spotlight to caregivers. And uh, we'll talk about that at some point. But what a fascinating interview with Dr. Diane Eustall. Thanks, Doc. hope you've enjoyed today's program, but more importantly, that it's inspired you to start growing bolder in your own life. And the way to do that is to embrace change, because change, well, that's the path to success and happiness. Yeah, good point. Most of us try to avoid change and stay in our comfort zones, but comfort zones are a trap. They keep us from growing and learning new things. And the ordinary people that we profile right here on Growing Bolder, without exception, all say that taking a chance and not being afraid to fail is what led them to the life that they really enjoy. You know, change triggers new beginnings, new adventures, new opportunities. It's how we become the people we want to be, the person that we're meant to be. So don't fear change. Be ready for it and be open to it. That's it for another edition of Growing Boulder, folks. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me Eat it brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-right prejudice leap for Ripped out Oh